goes to Luke chapter 20. Today I'm going to be reading from verse 9 all the way down to verse 19. Let me read it to you. You can follow along in your own Bible. Then he, that is Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him and when they see that it is him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Certainly not. And he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on him, whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. Amen. So here we are in the the last few days of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ before the crucifixion. And today we're in that time when he is teaching in the temple, he has driven out all of the merchandisers, all of the salesmen, the, the uh, coin changers, the tax people. He and, and driven out all of their, their animals and everything else. And the temple has become a place of worship, a teaching place. And here we have Jesus sitting on the temple steps, teaching the crowds of people who are there to celebrate the Passover, or this festival time. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the the Sanhedrin, then seize upon the opportunity to try and rend control back of the building, of the festival. And they come and they challenge Jesus in front of everybody. And I told you last time, That this wouldn't have been some small private affair. We're talking about the most powerful people in the country. Basically it was the Pope and the Cardinals. And the politicians. 
all gather together. It was like the government of the country came and demanded to know by what right had Jesus to do the things that he had done. And who gave him the right? My Jesus in his wisdom answers them by then pointing to John the Baptist and asking them the question for, or should we say, asks them for an official statement. What was the official declaration upon John? The Bible tells us that they conspired among themselves. They consulted one another and they realized if we say this, then he'll say this to us. And if if we, we say this, then the people are going to be really cross. You know, what are we going to do? And they did nothing. And likewise, Jesus then didn't answer them. And they knew that they were powerless against them. And then in the same instant, Jesus, in the front of all who are gathered with the chief priests, and remember I told you what the chief priests were. The chief priests were a delegation, uh, uh, the, 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 the super Pharisees led by the chief priest, the high priest, sorry. And then you'd have the, the captain of the temple, the directory of the weekly uh, course, the director of the daily course. You would have had the, 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 the overseer of the temple and then you would have had the treasurer or the chancellor. Very powerful men, super powerful men. Together with the Sanhedrin, 70 of the elders, the most powerful people in all of Israel. Together with the scribes who were the, the lawyers, the 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 men who were able to dissect and analyze the, the law and what was legal and what wasn't legal. And here Jesus begins to tell this parable. We see that he begins by the, the talking about the, the planting of a vineyard in, in the temple. I've said this before. In the temple, by the, over the, the beautiful gate. One of the gates is called the beautiful gate. I mean... That's just saying what it was. It was the beautiful gate. There was a tremendous illustration of a um, grapevine. Golden grapes. The grapes were so large that a man couldn't put his arms around them. Couldn't put his arms around half of the grape. If you can imagine one grape was so large that a man couldn't put his hands around it or his arms around it. And it was over the gate as you came into the temple. And indeed, as you were coming down over the Mount of Olives towards the entrance to Jerusalem, you would have been able to see this giant illustration, this, this giant grapevine over the gate. It shone apparently in the sun as the sun was rising. And it would have just... Here Jesus is making an illustration. Our, our connection to, I think it's Isaiah 5 and 2, where... The prophet is saying that, that, that uh, Israel was God's vineyard. The people understand the illustration. They understand immediately that the man, a certain man, is God. And the vineyard is Israel. And that God then gave Israel into the care of certain men. The vine dressers or the, the farm workers, the Agriculturalists. 
And it was their job to look after Israel and to care for it, to teach it. But instead of, of, of giving the right, the, the harvest, the payment, it says here, after uh, at vintage time, harvest time, he sent a servant. In the original text, it's not servant, it's slave. There's a big difference there. A slave was the property of its master. A slave was an extension of yourself. A servant is just an employee. But when you send a slave, you're literally sending yourself. It's, it's one who belongs to you. You could strike a servant because you, you could strike a private individual. But to destroy someone's property, the slave ro- rules and regulations in, in the ancient world were really strict. And to strike a man's slave was to strike the man himself. And you could be in serious trouble for that. The owner of the vineyard sends the slave and instead of honouring this representative of the owner of the vineyard, they abuse him. They beat him and send him out empty-handed. And that would have been so shocking. Again, Jesus is the master of telling shocking stories. It was, it's something absolutely ridiculous and idiotic that you would treat the one who owns your property in such a, a wicked way. And the people when on hearing this, they all would have thought to themselves, oh, oh, they're all going to die. The Romans would be involved and there would be a, a severe penalty. But then Jesus again expands the shockingness of the story. Instead of coming in vengeance, instead of coming with anger and destroying, killing the offenders, the owner of the vineyard sends another slave. Not necessarily like trip, trap, true. Not like one after another. There could have been years gone by. We don't know. It's very unlikely that the, the owner of the vineyard sent one a slave and then another and then another on the same harvest time. It's probably long distance away. Time went by, sent another. Time went by, sent another. And what we're seeing is uh, the illustration. Jesus is illustrating of the graciousness and the mercy and the compassion of God. Now we understand that the slaves are an illustration of the prophets. And how God sent prophet after prophet to Israel. Calling them back. Calling them to a place of worship and of obedience to the law of God. And yet the vine dressers, the leaders and the people of Israel. How they mistreated them and beat them. Didn't hear them. Didn't even recognize them, despised them, and belittled them. Gets to a, a state where the owner of the vineyard then says, What shall I do? And he says, I will send my beloved son. The idea here is he sends the heir, the one to whom the vineyard will eventually go to. 
It's probably already written in the will of the owner of the vineyard. This is the man to whom all authority and all respect will one day be given. But instead of honoring this, the heir, their future, the future owner of the vineyard, the people look upon him and and they say, oh, here he comes. Let's kill him and that we might become the heirs, that we might inherit it. And the laws in the ancient world were very flexible in this sense. If you worked upon a land and the owner of the land did not make a claim of ownership within three years, you would have what's called squatter rights. We understand squatter rights. If you're living in a place for over a, 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 an extended period of time and no one contests the fact that you're living there, you're working in the land, the land then resor- reverts back to you. And here in this parable, Jesus is, is illustrating that. They're saying, well, if we kill him, then we will inherit the land. There will be no one to come and claim it. Israel will be ours. The kingdom will be ours. Here it says, so they cast out the vineyard, or cast him out of the vineyard in order not to pollute the vineyard. They, they, they put him outside and they killed him. And then Jesus asks the question to the crowd, What shall be done? Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he answers, he will come and destroy the, the, those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And then they res- respond with this. And when they, that is the crowd in front of Jesus, perhaps the, the, uh, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, when they heard this, they replied, certainly not. Now, in my Bible, it just says, certainly not. And in the old Old English Bible, perhaps it says, God forbid. It's probably one of the most strongest language use of languages in the Gospels. It's like seriously hard. May God never let this happen. It is on the border to rude language. Now, Paul quite regularly uses this kind of language in his writings. But in the Gospels, it's very, very unheard of. It's, it's, it's a... An exclamation, it, it, it's a use of language that is so unbelievably hard that it shows the shock of the people. It shows that their, their response, they understood exactly what was happening. That if, if this was to happen, everything would be destroyed. And that God would give the kingdom to others. And they responded by, may this never happen. Oh, God forbid that this should happen. It's not going to happen. And then Jesus responds with this quote from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. This is actually one of the early church's favorite verses. This is one of the verses that the early church absolutely adored. Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, 
We don't know if it was a keystone, the kind of stone that goes over an arch. You put a keystone that keeps the arch together, all the weight is laid upon it. Or if it was an actual cornerstone in the ancient world, they would put a large stone, uh, uh, either a, a rectangle or a square, in the corner of the building. And then they would build the walls from that stone so that all the pressure was laid upon that one stone. So the entire weight of the building was being held by this one giant stone. The, the, the two walls would pinch on the big stone and it would become, a, you wouldn't be able to move it with a tractor. That, it was that solid. Even still today, if you go to megalithic builds, megalithic ruins in the world today, you will still find that these stones that are, these stone buildings that are maybe 6,000 years old, pre-flood buildings, that are still standing. The foundations of them today are still standing and they use this type of technology. It's earthquake proof, it's flood proof. And they've been standing for 6,000 years so far or 10,000, nobody really knows. It was a tremendous way of building your building. And Jesus said that, that the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. The, the stone that was thought of as being unworthy has become the most worthy, the most crucial stone in the build. And then he goes on and says, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever it falls on will be it will grind him into powder. That we must fall and be broken. It's, the idea is repentance. And we fall upon Christ. If we don't, then the judgment will fall upon us and we'll be ground into nothingness. It's the idea of a, 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 a cornerstone. What's that in English? Uh, millstone. My English is terrible today. I apologize. The <laughs> Swedish is not that much better. The idea is that you're, you're, you're ground down into nothingness. He's, there's this warning going on. Jesus is warning once again the people. He's warning again, again the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. The thing that you're about to do will bring judgment upon you. The thing, the very thing that, that you're planning will bring down your downfall. They are seeking a way to bring Jesus down. And yet in the doing so, in the bringing Jesus down, in the killing of Jesus, in the seizing of Jesus, they will bring upon themselves their own destruction. Verse 19, the chief priests and the scribes, their response to this isn't one then of, of repentance. It isn't one of, of they take the warning seriously. They are enraged by it. This makes them all the more impassioned against Jesus. This caring warning, this merciful message, and it doesn't elicit a reasonable response. It elicits rage from the chief priests and the scribes. It says that that very hour they sought to lay hold upon Jesus. I can just imagine them, you know, stomping off in their big robes saying, well, okay, this is enough, we can't take this anymore, let's get him. 
And yet the Bible tells us because of their fear of the people. Isn't it really interesting to realize that the, the chief priests, they didn't really care about the people. Didn't care about the people. They were making merchandise. They had no concern about the welfare of the people. They could you know, teach them lies and, and uh, keep them controlled by the, the functions of ceremonies and rituals. They didn't really care. As long as the people kept paying their money, as long as the people kept giving them appreciation, they were okay. But they were concerned that the people might be awakened and enraged and take away their place. So they were more concerned about public opinion than they were about the welfare of the public. And because of that fear, they could not do anything. It was too public. Their fingers would get dirty. Their hands would be dirty. They'd be caught red-handed in the unrighteous arrest of Jesus. And they couldn't have that. It's very interesting to know that they were wise enough, intelligent enough, that they understood that Jesus was speaking against them. Have you ever been told that Jesus never spoke against anyone? Has anyone ever said to you, Jesus never, Jesus never named names, never pointed out. Jesus never was divisive. He brought people together. I don't know where they get that from. It's not from the Bible. Here Jesus is openly defying the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. He's openly demonstrating that these are the men who are the descendants of the destroyers of the prophets. These are the men who, if they lived in the prophets' days... They would have killed the prophets just as quickly as their ancestors did. They had no desire for the things of God. They desired a status quo that allowed them to be seen and heard and paid. But they did not care about the individuals. And they certainly did not care about the plan and the purpose of God. Now beloved... How then do we draw an application to this to ourselves? Well, it's, it's a difficult one. I think first and foremost, when we look at this parable, we must see that there is an expect, expectation of God upon Israel that they were to bear fruit and to give that fruit in return. What was the fruit? Glory unto God. Obedience. Recognition. Worship. That they were given a function and a role, a job, a duty. And at the end of it, it says that the owner of the vineyard will destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, you and I are not Jews, and we do not belong to Israel of old, yet we have faith in Christ. And the responsibility of worship has been passed from the nation of Israel to you and to me, to we who are the spiritual Israel. We are those who are called to worship in spirit and truth. You and I are not required to go to Israel three times a year, to Jerusalem and offer up sacrifices. 
That time has passed. But there is an obligation. There is an expectation from God laid upon you and I as individuals and as a collective, as a congregation, as a community of people that we are to give back to God in worship. I think the first and foremost of the applications from this text is there is the expectation of worship. God called Israel to be a nation of worship, to be his witness in this world, and they failed in that. Indeed, they were actively the opposite. They were rebellious in their act of worship. And instead of lifting Christ up from the world in a way to bring attention and glory to him, they lifted him up in a way that they sought to defame him, to embarrass him, to shame him. They thought the thing that they were doing would bring him down. That it would be a disgrace to his name. You and I, as the spiritual Israel, we who are grafted in to the vine. You and I are called to be worshippers. And I think that needs to be the fundamental lesson in, in our life. And then there's the warning. That's what we're called. Then there's a warning, which I find this week very shocking. When Israel did not meet... Now, of course, primarily this parable is to Israel. And it is about Israel. But there are lessons we can learn from it. When they did not respond in the way that they were supposed to respond. Now you and I will not kill Christ. You and I will not kill prophets. Please God. Amen. But we who worship in spirit and truth. How often do we close our ears to the words of God's people? To the word of God. How often times do we harden our heart? In response, when we hear and know the things that we are supposed to do, and yet we stick our head in the sand like a figurative ostrich. We put our fingers in our ears and begin to sing, la, 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 la. We look at, we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, which may be spoken through the lips of another, or from the text of Scripture, or spoken from the pulpit, and we we. Pass it off. Well, that's for this person or that's for that person. That's for those who are spiritually spiritually a little bit higher up than me. That's for those who care about these things, not necessarily for me. I don't have that expectation. That's for the mothers and the fathers, the brothers and the sisters. But for me, I'm free from that. And we distance ourselves from what the Word says. You and I may never kill a prophet, but we certainly might not listen to his words. He said, well, God, I I would never reject Jesus. I would never, never would I ever reject Jesus. I love him, love him. And yet, when we have those opportunities to lift him up, to point 
to him, to share him with people, we are embarrassed. You know that Paul says in the book of Romans, in the first chapter, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he say that? Because in this world, the gospel is shameful. It's embarrassing. And it is our human nature to be embarrassed about the gospel. And therefore we respond in an embarrassed way. We, we kind of... <laughs> and we soften it down. We put our hand over our face. We, we muffle it. We uh, talk about anything else other than a man's need to get right with God. We talk about anything else other than that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And only Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. All of your good deeds, all of your work, all of your best intentions are not enough. How often do we as Christians, instead of lifting Jesus up, instead of recognizing him and welcoming him as the saviour of the world, the only saviour of the world, the one who is the true and living God, who is as effective and efficient at saving today than he was ever in the past. And yet we, we, we lack the, the, the courage. We're fearful, embarrassed. Oh, that we would have a church that is unembarrassed, that's, that knows no shame, that is unashamed of the gospel. Oh, you and I, we would never kill Christ. We would never cast them out. But yet I think sometimes we are very guilty of neglecting him. Of figuratively and spiritually not bringing attention to him. Of distancing ourselves from him. The word of God tells us that there is an expectation put upon us, the spiritual Israel. Those who worship by spirit and truth, or worship in spirit and truth, that we are to give back to God, that we are to return to him that which is his. Praise and glory, honor and adoration, that our enthusiasm and our passion for the Lord Jesus Christ might be seen and heard and noticed in this world, that we might behave like salt and light in this dark and tasteless world full of corruption. Have you ever considered the people in the past and how, how Lord, has the gospel never really taken root? How have the churches in the past, yes, there have been a presence of Christians. There have been little congregations, like little mushrooms in the forest. Over the last 500 years of the Reformation light. But yet, we know that the gospel has never really taken root. There's never been a real gospel revival reformation in the north. Now you can say, well, I can't remember that, but... It's never really taken root. How do we know this? You look at church life. Look at congregational life. And you never see a real and true reflection of congregational life in the north. Not just Finland, but in the north. 
And I think one of the reasons why is because the people have never truly honestly embraced. They've never lifted Christ up. They've never held to this. And we know that history shows us again, especially here in, in the north, that when people were set on fire with passion and enthusiasm for God and for the kingdom and persecution came in the I want to say ancient times, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, when those people faced persecution, their first response and instinct was to flee. They looked at the word of God and said, what is the right response to persecution in the Bible? To flee. And we know that en masse, many of the reformed or Baptist thinking people got up and moved to Sweden and then from Sweden to America or Canada and settled there. And today we have massive Scandinavian Baptist churches or whatever you want to call them, Christian churches, who are the descendants, physical and spiritual, of people who were alive and awakened here. Why? Why do we not see the same response here as we did there? And I think that this parable has a little lesson for us if we refuse to give back to God that which is his I think we run the risk of having that which is which we have be taken from us and given to others I think there there comes if we resist and resist and if we are stepping against I'm not saying God will take our salvation away I don't believe that but our place in his kingdom should be taken from us and given to another. When will that happen? I don't know. It might be another 20 years. It might be another 100 years. But you and I run the risk if we stubbornly resist and Fail in our responsibility to give worship. Now I'm not saying sing and clap your hands and jump up and down. I'm sure you're glad, Daniel. I'm saying about living your life in obedience to his word. In actively lifting up Jesus in this life. In rejoicing in his word and in the obedience of it. Of not being overcome by the fear and the worries of this world. By being salt and light. By loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. By allowing your maturity. We understand what Christian maturity, what spiritual maturity looks like. It is measured by your enthusiasm and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. If we... Or neglectful and rebellious in our worship. We run the risk of having our place taken from us. God forbid that that should happen. You say, have you ever read Revelation? And Christ's words to the seven churches? And how there is the threat that he shall take away their lampstand? Their, the representation of Christ in that city. This is not a new teaching. Beloved, let us stand firm together. Let us stand firm in our faith. 
He who does not stand firm in his faith will not stand, it says in the Old Testament. Let us stand firm in our faith, in our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as individuals. That all of our lives, in everything that we do, our eating and drinking, our waking and our sleeping, even in our sleeping, that we will bring honor and glory to Lord Jesus Christ, that we will seek to lift him up, that we will seek to make him known, that we will seek to obey the commandment that he gave us before he left, to take the gospel into the very ends of the earth. The old Pentecostals used to have one of those piffy sayings. I love old Pentecostal piffy sayings. A missionary is not someone who crosses the sea, but rather one who sees the cross. Isn't that clever? Love old Pentecostal people. Beloved, do you see the cross? Beloved, are you active in your recompense of worship? And again, this is not just about Sunday service when we are gathered here. It's about our day and daily. It's about who we are. Are we reflectors of his glory? It's convicting, isn't it? It's challenging. It nipped me this week. It bit me deep this week. Because we can become so complacent. So Normal, you know, this is just the way my feels normal. And we become apathetic and eventually become lukewarm in our faith that we risk being vomited out of his mouth. Beloved, there is a risk that that which you have shall be taken from you and given to another. Let us as Christians, as individuals, and as a congregation, as a community of believers, let us commit our hearts and minds to the worship and to the preaching of the gospel to the kingdom of God. You are required to give a return. And God has invested in you. God has invested in you. And you are supposed to use the talents and the investment that God has set in you to bring glory to his name. First and foremost, in your spiritual being, in who you are, love, joy, peace, compassion. That we are not worldly in our, the expression of who we are as people. That there is a difference. Oh, isn't that convicting? Isn't it? That we are to be different than the people of this world, that we are to be salt and light. Oh, God, that hurts hard. And it gets harder the older you get, believe me. Grumpy old man syndrome. But you are required, I am required, to pay back. Salvation is of faith. Salvation is of faith. Amen. This is not works-based salvation. But salvation by faith leads to good works. Salvation by faith creates good works. You are saved onto good works. Jesus Christ died that he might redeem a zealous people. 
who are passionate about good works. Beloved, Jesus warned the leaders of Israel and the nation of Israel that if they did not pay back, if they did not give what was righteously required, that that which they had would be taken from them. And we know the story in hindsight. They did everything that you were supposed to do wrong. They, they, they did it. They killed Christ. They just... And all according to the will of God, we know that. But still, there was the element of human responsibility that we can never take away. And yes, as Calvinists, we believe in the sovereignty of God and that God, everything that was supposed to happen will happen. But at the same time, there is human responsibility. At the same time, you're commanded to pray. At the same time, you're commanded to, to read the scriptures to meditate upon the word of God. God will not make you do those things. At the same time, you're supposed to love your brothers and sisters to forgive when you're required to, to care, to provide for one another. God will not make you do those things. You are called to do those things. You must subjugate the flesh. You must mortify the flesh. You must rise up and walk in the things of God. And indeed the Bible says, And he who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Not by persevering to the end are you saved. But he who perseveres to the end demonstrates that he is saved. Beloved, let us walk and live our lives, our day and daily, in the light of God's word. Let's not be deceived in thinking that we can just coast our way through. Let's not think that we, we're, we're the enlightened ones. We're the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. and We can, we can just do whatever we want to do and there's no requirement. We, we're the rubbish. Beloved, let us repent of our selfishness. Let's repent of our worldliness. Let's repent of our arrogance and ignorance of God's word. Let us recommit to our living for Christ as individuals. Me, who I am in the light of the word of God. My relationships with my wife and my kids and with my neighbors, my friends, and whoever else. Our obligations of our work of our community and of our country, of our generation as individuals and then as a collective, as a community, as a congregation of people. What are our, our obligations? What has God called us to do as a congregation? How are we to be influential, to be salt and light in this world? How as a congregation are we to worship him and to give back to him, to bring him an investment on the talents that he has imparted to us? It's challenging. It's a bit scary. I do not want to lose the things that we have worked for. I do not want the... the 
the place that has been given to us to be taken off us and given to another because we have grown complacent and careless in our worship. Because we, are, we no longer love with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Because we are no longer impassioned and hungry and ambitious for the kingdom of God. But that's the risk that we run. God is not slow in taking it from us and giving it to another. Beloved, search our hearts. Let us look upon ourselves as a congregation and let us recommit to one another and to the kingdom of God, to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Christ's demonstration through this parable of you, the gracious God, who sends message after messenger, slave after slave, to warn and to instruct and to call your people back to righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that you are so ridiculously long-suffering with us. We thank you, Lord God, for Christ who did die and gave his life for us, who has fallen upon us, or who we have fallen upon and broken us. We know that, Lord God, we will live forever in heaven because of you and your work. We pray, O oh God, that you would shield our hearts from the apathy and carelessness, lukewarmness that can so easily infect us. We ask, O oh God, that you forgive us, Lord, for the worldliness that so often infects us. That so often distracts us, so often overcomes us, our careless relationships with our wives, our husbands, our children, our fathers, our mothers, our brothers and our sisters, our workmates and our, the strangers in the street, Lord, our careless attitudes and our unguarded hearts. Oh Lord, please help us to recommit into bringing you glory, Lord, to giving you back the greatest return that you can get from your investment into our lives Holy Spirit, you are alive. You are the true and real God who lives within us. Please, Lord, bear fruit unto righteousness. Lord, bear fruit. Let the people of this world see that there is a difference within us. Lord, that we are different because of your influence upon our lives. Lord, I pray, forgive us. And Lord, though we have failed so many times in the past and undoubtedly will fail so many times in the future, Please, Lord, please, Lord, regardless of our failure, may your successes be seen, Lord. Your mercy be seen. Your compassion and long-suffering be seen through our repentance and dependence upon you. Oh, Lord, we pray, oh God, as a congregation, that you'd help us to be committed to the worship of you in spirit and in truth. The Lord, we might lift you up in this land and in this world, the Lord, that through us you might plant churches to the very end of the world. Oh God, please, we beg of you, help us. Lord, that these words won't be just in and out, Lord, and fall aimlessly to the ground. But Lord God, that there would be a great return on your word. Oh, Father, we do pray this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.